From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang. I'm Stephen Lacey. In this edition, we'll talk about the ups and downs of PV demand around the world. We'll have a wide-ranging discussion on global solar trends. In the second half of the show, Tesla is under fire for using cheap foreign labor in its factory. Elon Musk says his company did not know. We will look into it. And we'll end in Nevada, where the solar and utility industries are spending money on campaigns to attack each other in the media. We will talk about the latest political kerfuffle there. In Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Fine, thanks. It's like a nuclear winter here. There is just never any more sunshine. I've heard you have, you've had rain for like three or four weeks in a row. Yeah, it's getting a little depressing. I guess I moved up to Boston at the right time then. Yeah, yeah. woohoo for Boston. In New York City, it's Jigger Shaw. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how, how you doing? I'm at a microgrid conference, so they have their own version of uh, perpetual rain. <laughs> Indeed. Well, we've got a good conversation, hopefully a slightly more sunny conversation for you coming up. Before we start, I want to announce another live show that we're doing at GTM's Grid Edge World Forum in San Jose. That event is taking place from June 21st to June 23rd, and we are recording our live show on the 22nd. GTM's editor-in-chief, Eric Wessoff, will be our special guest that will be uh, yet another fun time dissecting the news. That Grid Edge event is is one of my favorite that we put together because it it just puts together this really diverse field of distributed energy companies and utilities to look at the future of the grid. So we cover regulation, software, analytics, DER aggregation, storage, solar, behavioral efficiency, and utility business models. We've got it all. You can come see us live see dozens of panel discussions, and network with uh, the top players in the industry. All new registrants who are Energy Gang listeners get 10% off with the code ENERGYGANG, all one word. Remember, that's for just new registrants, if you've already registered, I'm sorry. Uh, and you can register at greentechmedia.com events. We have a lot to cover in the first half of the show related to global solar trends, and we've invited GTM's senior analyst for global markets, Mohit Anand, onto the show to talk about them. Mohit joins us out of our Boston office. Hello, how are you? Hi, Stephen. Very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on the show. So this year, GTM Research is forecasting that 66 gigawatts of PV capacity will be installed around the world. That's a 21% increase over last year. But next year, capacity is only going to expand by around 4% you're projecting. And without some of the top markets like India, the U.S. and China, we'd likely be going into a retraction. We're going to talk with Mohit about what is driving this reversal. First, I do want to talk about the Chinese solar manufacturer, Yingli Solar, because that is at the top of the news. We have not really talked about that company yet. So even though solar's overall global growth is going to slow in the coming years, demand in key markets is really strong, and that's helped producers of solar cells and modules regain their footing after a few rough years. But not Yingli. Once the world's biggest solar manufacturer, Yingli, is nearly $2 billion in debt. It announced this month that it can't pay back $263 million in loans, and talk about bankruptcy is getting louder. So, Mohit, why at a time when we've had unprecedented global demand for solar is this company doing so poorly? Yeah, I think it is quite exceptional, and I think that's because, uh, you know, Yingli has sort of uh, done this to itself. Um, I mean, you mentioned uh, $2 billion in debt. Uh, the company hasn't made a profit since 2011. Uh, and so things have only gone from bad to worse for Yingli, uh, even as, uh, you know, it spent much more money on on sponsoring the World Cup, for example. Uh, so I think Yingli is just a case of uh, bad decisions gone worse. So why exactly did Yingli take on so much debt? I think that's the big question. And it sounds like because they tried to expand in all areas of their business at once, uh, kind of reminiscent of what Tesla's doing, I suppose. And it really sounds like that widespread expansion strategy really hurt it, even when the global market was expanding. Yeah, there is something something in that claim. Uh, I think uh, 
capacity expansion, at least on the sort of module manufacturing and, and wafers and cell side, uh, has been uh, common across many large manufacturers, especially out of China. Uh, but I think Yingli is different because it, it also expanded capacity on the polysilicon side. Uh, and the dynamics within the polysilicon uh, manufacturing space are very different from uh, anything further downstream, so on the modules and wafers. Uh, and I think that's really uh, the key pain point for, for Yingli compared to some of the other manufacturers that also expanded uh, module and cell manufacturing. Yingli also took a big risk in 2010 to expand its capacity when there was that temporary shortage of modules in 2010. I think they read the signals wrong, and then they had the huge um, you know, cloud over them with the U.S. tariffs in 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, and, and so it, it seems like they, they really just didn't make a lot of great decisions um, around when to expand and when to sort of you know, let the market stay tight? Well, a lot of other manufacturers are doing quite well comparatively. So Yingli does seem to be a unique case here. Let's talk about why um, demand is looking pretty good right now, but why it could level off. And there are a few different trends that you've talked about, Mohit, that we should keep our eyes on in the, the global solar market. First, um, why are we seeing such a, you know, we're seeing 21% increase in global demand this year, and that's because there are a bunch of high-performing markets. Tell us what's going on in 2016, and then let's move into 2017 and some of the declining markets that we're going to talk about. So what's happening right now that is giving us, bringing us to 66 gigawatts of global demand? A lot of markets on fire at the moment. Definitely. And I think the biggest one on fire, of course, is the U.S., right? Uh, I mean, this year will be by far the, the biggest year for solar in the U.S. Uh, of course, a lot of that tied to uh, the ITC extension dynamics. Uh, the ITC was expected to be phased out by the end of 2016. Uh, so 2016 was that sort of demand spike year for the U.S. And that's really uh, what's pushing the market forward this year by and large. The other big story of 2016 is India, which very quickly is sort of consolidating into this multi-gigawatt major market globally. Uh, I mean, by 2018, India will be the top three market. Uh, and uh, this year, for example, uh, demand in India will double from what it was in 2015. Uh, so those really are the two major drivers. Let's not forget uh, also just China, which, uh, you know, will com will relatively slow down this year compared to 2015, uh, but will also still uh, add close to uh, 17 and a half gigawatts, which is quite phenomenal. So these the major markets really are uh, pushing forward demand uh, like never before. Uh, I guess there's additional uh, impetus coming as well from from markets in Latin America. So Brazil has a huge pipeline that it is looking to execute on. Chile has added uh, capacity uh, last year and will double again this year. Uh, Mexico uh, has just uh, allocated close to two gigawatts of solar in its latest auctions. So those projects will begin to execute already this year. Uh, so a lot of additional momentum as well coming for solar in 2016. So Mohit, I'm, I'm curious your... Um impressions around the differences between the markets. It just seems to me like China is one of those markets with their um, manipulated currencies, you know, has an ability to really uh, get a lot of local finance as well as global finance. Whereas places like India, where you've got, you know, rupee that's devaluing in ways that are, is completely unpredictable in Brazil, where, you know, things are just a complete mess right now. Um, it just seems like the ability to attract foreign capital is much more difficult um, at, you know, sort of the, the lower expected rates of return. Definitely. I mean, that's always the case with uh, with risky markets like India and others in Latin America. Uh, but I recently read an article uh, where someone was talking about, you know, how the Mexican market is viewed. Uh, and, 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 and the person that wrote it said, well, you know, in the, in the energy business, everyone understands that there's risk. Uh, in uh, developing countries, but that's where the greatest upside is as well. So I don't think I don't think I think a lot of sort of financial institutions and investors uh, are more concerned with understanding these risks in these markets and hedging against them in the appropriate way, or at least ensuring that uh, the right kind of returns make up for those risks. But I don't think they're scared away from that risk overall. Uh, a market like India has been installing solar for over five years now, so there is an excellent track record uh, on which investors can really rely on. Uh, and the policies are, you know, far more uh, sophisticated, uh, increasingly more sophisticated, and and uh, and tied to tied to off takers that are far better understood and that that have that have uh, built a track record of 
uh, of uh, making payments to their to their uh, to their uh, suppliers. Uh, so I think similar th- there's a similar dynamic at play in Latin America as well. It's still early days for Latin America, and we see some of those financing challenges, especially in markets like Brazil, where you know apart from just uh, being an early stage solar market, it's also a market that's in a, in an economic and political crisis at the moment. Uh, so those challenges certainly remain. But I think uh, there, there there are ways and policies in place. Uh, where finance, when financiers and investors can become much more comfortable. So, Mohit, I did want to ask a little bit more about the policy side because I think a lot of our listeners are pretty well aware of the investment tax credit here in the U.S. and how that continues to push the market for solar. But can you explain a little bit more about what other types of policies are on the global stage that are pushing those markets? Yeah, that's a great question because, uh, you know, what we're seeing recently is uh, that there's a very strong focus globally, especially in developing countries, around uh, very simple uh, policies tied to auctions for solar. Uh, And I think that that policy particularly is gaining favor because, uh, on the one hand, it allows uh, governments uh, and and utilities to control the amount of solar that comes on by by auctioning out sort of uh, parcels of capacity. And on the other hand, it inherently uh, requires solar to uh, to be more competitive and to drive down prices. Uh, so, I mean, it, to my mind, India is one of the countries that really drove such a policy five years ago with its national solar mission. Uh, Latin America has has adopted that policy as well quite widely. And we've seen, uh, you know, developed markets as well, like in Germany and France, uh, where, you know, the primary policy for solar for many, many years was feed-in tariffs. Uh, these markets also have scaled back uh, feed-in tariffs and, and switched uh, to solar auctions because they see the benefits tied to that. And what's interesting about solar auctions is that, you know, while uh, while that capacity, of course, is uh, carved out for solar, so solar might not necessarily compete with other technologies, it nonetheless does not have any sort of uh, subsidy uh, or incentive attached to it uh, for solar, unlike the U.S. Uh, investment tax credit, where, which essentially is a sort of uh, subsidy. Uh, what's really interesting within auctions as well is that in Latin America especially, we are seeing that uh, many of these auctions are multi-technology, so they aren't specific to solar. Uh, in Chile, for example, uh, solar has competed with uh, several other technologies, non-renewable as well. Uh, in Brazil, solar competes with wind uh, to win the majority of capacity in the auctions. Uh, and in Mexico recently, we saw that solar competed with uh, what what is broadly categorized as clean, clean technologies, so that included uh, hydro, uh, biogas, uh, and uh, gas-based co-generation, and solar won 74% of that auction, uh, of the capacity uh, put forward in that auction. So uh, solar is not only being uh, sort of subsidy-free, essentially, through these auctions, but also out-competing other technologies. Is the decline in the feed-in tariff in Japan a sign that we've finally reached the end for feed-in tariffs globally? I mean, it was this dominant policy that was put into place in Europe and in Asia, and, you know, we still see some countries with feed-in tariffs. But, you know, one could argue that the feed-in tariff in Japan did what it needed to do because they needed a lot of different types of energy capacity to fill in the the gap after they closed nuclear plants. But at the same time, they've caused a number of local grid problems by supporting so much solar so quickly, and it has cost a lot of money. Just curious what you think about the long-term feasibility of feed-in tariffs and whether the experience in Japan is representative of the end of the feed-in tariff era. I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, where Japan is going with feed-in tariffs now, it really does signal the sort of last mile for feed-in tariffs globally. Uh, And there's absolutely no doubt that feed-in tariffs in Europe, in Japan, and even in China have really been responsible for that sort of uh, massive solar growth that we've seen in the past that has really led to uh, those increasingly falling solar costs. Uh, But I think there's no denying that feed-in tariffs have have come with their fair share of problems. Uh, Japan is a great case because there we've seen too much solar too soon, uh, where uh, not only has that uh, put pressure on on uh, public funds uh, and on end consumers that have had to increasingly pay higher surcharges for, for renewable surcharges, uh, but has also essentially uh, saturated seven out of the ten utilities, uh, saturated their sort of grid capacity uh, that that tied to solar. And and this is this is just a repeat of what we've seen in Europe again and again, right? Germany has been a victim. Uh, France, Italy, Spain. Uh, It's interesting that Japan is actually the first non-European country uh, to uh, 
to push out uh, feed in tariffs uh, in this manner um so yeah i think it is the end of days for feed in tariffs and rightfully so it, it's it's a fairly uh, sort of a blunt policy instrument uh, it doesn't inherently incentivize cost reductions it's difficult to control the amount of capacity additions that are, that come on through feed in tariffs and i think governments are increasingly realizing that they need to move to uh, paradigms like auctions that are far more controllable and kind of uh, are, are able to uh, balance out uh, the increase in solar capacity. Well, I mean, I'm I'm glad that people are finally coming to the point of view that you know I've had for a long time, and others around the f- the fact that feed-in tariffs in their form are ridiculously expensive policy. But I think, um, I mean, I, I do I do want to caution that I don't think that solar has actually saturated the grids in Japan. I think this is more of sort of selective reporting. You know, I, I certainly think that they've only had two uh, instances of curtailment, and it's not clear that that they actually have saturated those grids as much as the utilities sort of claiming saturation. Um, the, the one question I had, though, on the other side is that it's not clear to me that auctions are a sustainable policy either, right? I mean, I think that auctions have sort of been saved by the fact that solar costs have come down far more rapidly than even the most cynical government um, uh, regulators expected. And so people who underbid what would have been a fair bid in the auctions were still saved because solar costs came down much faster within, let's say, a two-year or three-year time period that they had to build the projects. But I don't think that we expect in India, for instance, where solar is routinely installed for 90, 95 cents a watt uh, for utility scale, that you're going to see uh, um, rapid um, decreases in the in the cost of installing solar in India. I think those concerns are completely valid, uh, Jigar. I think there's an inherent... Uh, uh, incentive uh, within these auctions to uh, for, for for pricing and cost assumptions to be overly aggressive and quite often unsustainable. Uh, but I think as we see in India as well, uh, you know what gap what captures the headlines are really those sort of lowest costs within these auctions. But there's a whole range of projects that are uh, well above those uh, those rock bottom prices. Uh, and you know, in a country like India, which is hoping to add 100 gigawatts, not all of it might happen. At least not until 2020. Um, you know, if if even 10% of that capacity doesn't doesn't really move forward uh, because those projects are unsustainable or unviable, uh, from a policy point of view, that's still a pretty strong su- success rate in a country like India. Especially if what they achieve by th- by the end of it is uh, low cost solar that that's then uh, f- fully scalable. Yeah, so Moet, I have a question about uh, an issue that your electric, the Union of Electricity Industry representing 32 countries is dealing with in Europe, which is wholesale market design, how to value the differences in energy, flexibility, and capacity. And maybe India doesn't have the penetration yet, but I'd love to hear kind of how are they going to have to deal with this as the solar market continues to boom and grow with, with having to deal with a wholesale market design, both from a tariff standpoint, but also just from an operational standpoint. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, in a country like India, those those markets are still sort of at their infancy. Uh, They do have a functioning spot market. They do have uh, open access, but none of that has taken off in the manner that government auctions uh, have, and not just for solar, more broadly for energy in India. Uh, And I think at the moment, I mean, traditionally across many countries, uh, wholesale power, uh, based projects are seen as the most risky and struggle the most to raise finance. Uh, and so banks and developers uh, do prefer uh, standard fixed PPAs with, with uh, credit-worthy off-takers. Uh, and so long as in India, um, states are coming up with a larger and larger capacity through for auctions, uh, I think that's really going to be the primary driver. So it's something that India will have to think about sooner rather than later, but certainly not on the horizon anytime soon, just just given the amount of capacity that states are putting forward voluntarily. Do we see anything major derailing the Indian or Chinese solar markets, will, which will be so crucial to maintaining growth, no matter how anemic, uh, in the global solar market? So what could derail these markets, if anything? So I'd say two big things. Uh, the first is uh, is high solar penetration and, and tied to that essentially curtailments. Uh, so curtailments are a huge problem in China right now. In some regions, uh, curtailment of solar on the grid is as high as 40%, uh, and that's that's only increasing. So the, the amount of capacity coming on is just unsustainable given the capacity of the grid. Uh, and grid expansion typically takes much, much longer uh, than, than solar projects to come online. Uh, and we are seeing that already happen in India. 
um, at the moment uh, you know solar capacity is is less than 1% of total uh, total capacity in india uh, but with the kind of pipeline that's in place uh, that's going to change very quickly uh, and and there's absolutely no consideration within the country of uh, what new grid capacity needs to look like and what the time frame of that needs to look like uh, let alone coordinating that with the kind of uh, solar expansion that's in the pipeline uh, so curtailment really is uh, the first key pain point that that's already real in china and coming up very quickly in india uh, the other key pain point is tied to that sort of fundamental uh, a uh, risk in auctions that jigger was talking about earlier right which is the quality of projects and i think uh, you know right now it's still early days i mean even the boom of solar in china is only about 3 to 4 years old uh, and in india the market is only now really uh, becoming sort of multi gigawatt so another 5 5 years down the line uh, we will really start uh, seeing uh, a lot of these sort of quality issues come to the fore uh where you know ma- many many gigawatts of projects potentially uh that 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 um that were installed at at very aggressive prices very aggressive uh rates uh will uh, perhaps just start going to scrap uh, and that's really a big risk on the horizon for these markets yeah no that that's certainly true i i do think that some of the quality particularly in the indian projects i think are suspect and we'll have to see whether they can be repaired or whether some of those projects are scrapped. Um I do want to push back on you though on this utility saturation question. I mean I do think that that part of what we're talking about whether it's the the grid edge technologies or battery storage technologies or demand side management technologies are all designed to better integrate all of these functions into the grid and I agree that that solar and wind are forcing um these countries to come to grips with utility 2.0 and and pushing these countries to not continue to run their grids like they did in the 1970s and China has resisted this change more than most which is why they've had so many curtailments but I don't think the curtailments are the fault of the solar and wind industry in fact I think that the solar and wind industry are doing its level best to bring these countries into the 21st century oh absolutely i don't think the fault is with solar or wind but the reality is that the grid really uh will not catch up as quickly uh, at least in the short term in countries like india uh and even with these sort of new technologies that can really uh, ease some of the troubles uh there is there is a sort of a silver lining in india though because uh, the, the the grid is a, a fairly widespread one and is quite integrated at the national level so there is much more room in india to balance out some of those um uh, some of those imbalances that might arise uh due to you know weather changes and such at the national level uh, it is a large enough country to have a uh, diverse weather weather patterns so there is some room there but i think um you know especially bringing in the kind of technologies that you j- just mentioned uh is 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 a kind of challenge just from a a, a system point of view in india it, 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 such large scale investments move much slower So I want to talk about uh, something that is a little less obvious, right? I think we've known that um Europe was going to rebound, Japan was going to fall, uh China and India were going to expand. Everyone thought that self-consumption was going to be a much bigger trend in Europe. And you've documented that we're falling well short of expectations in terms of solar plus storage deployment and uh self-consumption as feed-in tariffs have fallen. in western europe tell us a little bit about that trend that you've documented mohit yeah and i think a big big part of uh, sort of overemphasis on self consumption uh, has been just the fact that you know the political and economic reality in europe was one where policies needed to be scaled back uh, so i think a lot of the rhetoric of uh, self consumption really being the holy grail of solar growth in europe and far beyond uh, was kind of built up uh, just so that governments could justify uh pulling back their their feed in tariffs um and i think that that dynamic was was pretty harsh on on solar at the residential and commercial level uh where i think policies uh were pulled back uh, perhaps too early and too quickly uh for uh, and, and for, for a residential and commercial uh, segment that just wasn't ready to stand on its own to feet yet uh and a big part of that has been the fact that you know storage which is a, which is a key ingredient in that self consumption uh a thesis coming together is just not as viable as perhaps uh companies had hoped back back to two years ago and such uh, and and solar costs solar costs at the residential commercial level have not uh fallen as rapidly as perhaps required uh for that for solar as self consumption to 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 take off uh i think there's also the the fact that 
you know the business models that we see in europe around around self consumption are are not much um, different than what they were 2 years ago and haven't really uh, made the leap beyond uh, the kind of leasing models that we've seen already in the us and such so i think i think it's it's a great idea and and that's really the goal uh, of of governments and of consumers to move to that sort of solar as a self consumption paradigm uh, but the the market was just not there yet well, as someone who's attending a smart grid conference, or sorry, a microgrid conference right now, I would say that you know the the real gap I think in Europe and and I think increasingly in the U.S. is this microgrid concept. Um, you know that that you do need some balancing entity, and the balancing entity could actually just be at the um, DSP level or at the at the you know individual circuit level. Um, they don't necessarily have to be at the home level or at the the specific CNI location level, um, and I think that the what we're hearing at these conferences, the economics are quite strong. That in fact, you know, even in New York, where electricity prices are actually quite low in upstate New York, they're finding that most of these microgrid projects are penciling out at 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 uh, US, at, at New York state prices, um, which is pretty good. But I, I I do think that the regulatory framework around allowing for these larger balancing areas um, outside of single home or single CNI uh, locations um, is, is a huge regulatory barrier. There's one last trend I want to ask about. We've whipped our way around the world and talked about some of the key markets, but let's talk about global demand diversification, which is really crucial, and that's what's kind of keeping the industry afloat as well. There are more than 20 countries with around 2 gigawatts of cumulative demand by 2020, so this diversity is uh, really important because solar is clearly making its way into markets around the world rather than just a few key markets with ambitious federal policies. Tell us about that, Mohit. Yeah, that's a really big story uh, the way we see it at the moment because uh, you know we've all heard of the solar coaster and the fact is that uh, all these major markets that we've spoken about are still reliant on uh, government policies uh, for new capacity addition. And at one point or the other, there will be glitches uh, within those policies. There will be pullbacks. Uh, but what's great about this sort of uh, demand diversification story is that a lot of uh, a lot of developers and and and, and everyone across the value chain uh, does not need to put all their eggs into just these very large markets baskets. Uh, and and what's really driving that diversification is. Uh, that expansion of the sort of policy landscape uh, across Latin America, uh, many countries in South Southeast and East Asia that that don't come up on the sort of uh, solar solar map are uh, you know South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Philippines, uh, and I could go on. Uh, and in Latin America, uh, you know, apart from Brazil, Chile, and Mexico, which are uh, very large markets and will will you know be uh, well over uh, one to two gigawatt markets by 2020. We also have smaller countries in the Caribbean, uh, in Central America, uh, that are uh, adding between 100 to 200 megawatts, which is which is quite meaningful when it comes to uh, uh, demand beyond just the major markets. Um, and you know, based on based on this, we see uh, we see an opportunity in as many as twenty to thirty countries uh, in 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 the world uh, by twenty twenty, uh, which will offer demand in 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 addition in, in upwards of uh, one to two gigawatts, uh, far beyond just the kind of multi gigawatt markets that we see today. Well, there you have it. That's what we are seeing around the globe, or at least that's what Mohit and the global demand team are seeing. He is our senior global analyst at GTM Research and is the author of our Global Solar Demand Monitor, which you can find at greentechmedia.com slash research. A lot of good data in there. Mohit, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. On to Tesla now. Yesterday, Tesla announced plans to sell $2 billion in stock to ramp up production for the Model 3. The company is rushing in any way it can to expand its electric vehicle and battery factors as quickly as possible, a rush that may have led to shoddy labor practices. The San Jose Mercury News reported this week that a contractor employed foreign workers, Eastern Europeans, to build a paint shop at Tesla's Fremont headquarters for $5 an hour. One worker nearly died in an accident while on the job, and that accident led to an investigation uh, of the contractor. It was There was a lawsuit as well, and that investigation led to Tesla. This is particularly embarrassing on its face for Tesla because it prides itself on paying its employees really good salaries to work in American factories, but the company is pushing back hard, saying it didn't know about the alleged practices. 
Musk tweeted out documents this week showing Tesla paid that same subcontractor $55 an hour for labor, and apparently the contractor didn't pass that money on. So it did have the opportunity to pay fair wages, but only paid $5 an hour. So what are we to make of the story and Tesla's response? Catherine, we've had a few days to digest this. The Mercury News put out their story earlier this week. They've had a couple updates. Tesla has come out with a bunch of responses. Elon Musk has been very active on Twitter. What do we know so far about what happened? Yeah, I would say that the response was instant on Twitter uh, from Elon, who who's very, very active. And I would just say that, you know, while the optics were not good for Tesla, once you dug down into, you know, what, what was the scheme for, you know, there's a company that is a paint specialist, Iceman, who um, is, is brought in to build this paint shop. They then subcontract that to someone else this ISM views them who gets laborers from overseas. And, you know, I think that it's very hard for a company that subcontracts and contracts, and then that contractor subcontracts additional labor to really be able to follow that chain and figure out, you know, what's going on. And I think this brought it really to a head. And a lot of this has to do with the way visas are issues, honestly, because this labor subcontractor got a bunch of B-1 visas, which are supposed to be temporary visas for employment, um, for someone to come in as a supervisor um, in a specialty and then come in and come out. Um, there it turns out that there are millions of these visas issued every year that are really being abused. And um, I think a lot of people don't understand that because most of the press in Silicon Valley and the and the outcry is around these H-1B visas, which are for highly skilled laborers. And there are not enough of those issued every year. There are only 85,000 a year, 20,000 of which are exempt folks who have master's degrees and hires from U.S. universities. So really only like 65,000 people, highly skilled laborers, are able to come in on an H-1B visa. Um, but these evidently these B-1 visas are being absolutely abused. And I think it's not something that people were aware of in Tesla and probably in a lot of other companies too. That to me is the story. It's this broken visa process. So... <laughs> You know, countries, people who from other countries, the best and brightest who want to work over here, they spend a lot of time and a lot of money. And it, it, you know, it's really hard to get them to work here. And meanwhile, you have a lot of subcontractors that are bringing poorly paid workers over through this B-1 visa, claiming that they're in supervisory jobs, which is what these jobs are supposed to be, and then putting them to work with really crappy wages. And that's exactly what happened here at Tesla. And this is a really major problem, according to a lot of labor experts. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, especially, there are a lot of these workers that are coming over uh, under subcontractors and getting paid nearly nothing to develop really highly priced products. And the US government doesn't have a lot of incentive to really fix this, as far as I can understand. Um, they don't want U.S. workers to get shut out of other programs within other countries, so they're willing to allow this type of labor to come over here and work on specific projects. And, and I think that there's a disincentive to crack down on this practice because they're afraid of what it would do to limit American workers overseas. Yeah, and it seems that there are a lot of companies that have found these workarounds. So this this German contractor, this Eisenmann company, was – supposed to be a specialist um, on paint. And that's exactly what Tesla needed. It needed. They said, we don't have this in-house, so we're going to contract it out. And I imagine a lot of other companies are doing this too. And what they don't realize, and this may not have come up if this poor gentleman hadn't fallen three stories off of a roof, broken both legs and sustained a concussion. I mean, if that hadn't happened and he hadn't done something about it, we may not have even heard about this story. Um, and, and certainly Elon Musk may never have heard about this story either. Um, but but I really do think there it, it warrants an investigation of how these B-1 visas are being issued uh, through the State Department. I don't want to jump to too many conclusions because I think this is still playing out in real time. Tesla, I don't think, um, 
should be fully blamed for this, right? It looked really bad when this story came out. And then as they responded and they released documents showing that they paid the contractor fair wages that they would pay American workers, it was clear that they didn't really understand the problem. And Elon Musk said that he would make it right for this worker who fell and almost died and that they would, you know, somehow compensate him. And so Tesla, I think, has done the right thing so far. The big question I have, and I don't think is answerable at this time, is what responsibility does Tesla have to vet, better vet these subcontractors if this is a known problem in Silicon Valley? So this problem is pretty new to me, and I think new to a lot of other people who are getting turned on to this story. But for folks who are working with these large contractors who are bringing in these other subcontractors from overseas, there has to be some accountability somewhere. And um, I don't know at what point Tesla should have known about this and what other companies may or may not know about other hiring practices, but clearly this is a known issue in Silicon Valley. And so I think we, we can't completely let Tesla off the hook uh, when we look at this in a macro sense. Well, there's, I mean, it, this plays out in many different levels, right? I mean, in the presidential election, you've got this huge immigration issue. You know, like when you look around um, our space, there's a tremendous number of people that we've tried to hire, for instance, at Generate Capital that we find out after the fact, even though they've been here for 10 years or on various visas that don't allow us to hire them. And so, I mean, this Byzantine system that we have does lead to a lot of abuses and you can take the Republican point of view, which is this is all because of overregulation and the Democrat point of view, which is that this is mostly a um, function of the weakening of unions where the unions really do a good job of protecting labor um, safety and, and making sure people are trained and, and able to do stuff locally. But I, I do think that either way, no matter how you come at this problem, we are in a place where things are broken. And I do think that this could have been a, um, a teaching moment for Tesla where they could have actually stepped in and said, look, we're going to do right by the entire system. Um, but instead, I think they're just going to get away with, you know, writing a check to, you know, one individual that got injured without actually trying to solve the, the broader problem here. Well, I think it. we do need to shine a light on this, though, on the visa process and the millions and millions of these B-1 visas that are being issued. So if this incident leads us as a country to shine a light on our labor practices, I think that is uh, one positive outcome. But it, but I don't think that will happen unless Tesla wants it to happen. I mean, if all they do is settle with this person, this visa issue will go to page A20 and, you know, never be heard from again. If they actually, you know, join Zuckerberg and decide to, you know, work on immigration reform, um, you know, coming out of Silicon Valley, then it may change. But we're not there yet. I never thought that I would have to get so acquainted with the visa system so quickly. Uh, the ball is in Tesla's court now, so we'll see if um, they support broader reform or if this gets swept under the rug. I will say their 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 upfront response was quite good, but I agree that they need to do something more. Yeah, and my understanding is that they do use uh, union subcontractors in their gigafactories, so it's not it's not like this is something that they that they've not considered as the the labor practice. They do they do use union labor. Oh, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting they're not. I'm simply suggesting that like. I mean, the unions have been on the decline for 30 years in this country, right? I mean, union membership is down way down in the private sector compared to public sector. And in the solar industry, I know for a fact that, you know, even though the IBW has done a ton in our industry as well as the rooftop unions, um, particularly helping us on policy, um, the solar industry hasn't actually made a commitment to, you know, unionizing workforces, et cetera. All right. Well, let's wrap up with a look at what's happening in Nevada. If you'll remember back to December, regulators there voted to slash net metering for rooftop solar down to the wholesale rate over a period of a couple of years. The most controversial part of that decision was applying that change to all customers, not just new rooftop solar customers. And that unprecedented move is just going to decimate their investments. So people who thought that they were going to get a certain return based on the net metering regime have now gotten the rug pulled out from under them. The last five months, as a result, have been a political firestorm. We've seen protests, a lawsuit against the governor, a ballot initiative to change the policy, a utility ad campaign against the solar industry, and the solar industry ad campaign against the utilities. There was a breakthrough this week, though. 
a small breakthrough. After a solar industry ballot initiative was struck down in March, Governor Brian Sandoval's Energy Task Force voted to reverse the decision for homeowners who had already purchased or leased a solar system. The solar industry, of course, wants a full reversal. They want it to happen quickly, but it's likely that they won't get one. This is at least a small step uh, in the direction of helping out the homeowners who have already signed contracts. Jigger, um, how do you think this is going to play out now in Nevada? I think it's the same as what we've been talking about, right? When the Nevada state legislature comes back into session, they're going to have to pass a law that basically slaps the Public Service Commission you know, on the wrist and says, you guys don't know what you're doing and you have to reverse this. Well, this is, this is a key phrase, when they come back. So it's going to be a long time before anything gets done. So, you know, the, the Energy Task Force could recommend broader reform or just a, an incremental change to the net metering policy. That, that will then go to the legislature, which then has to vote on it. So even if the task force proposes something ambitious, it's up to the legislature. Then there's this ballot initiative, which was struck down. This referendum that is going to voters was struck down by a judge. But there is a referendum that could go to the legislature again, but once again, we have to wait until 2017. So we are pretty much in the same situation. There are things happening. There are still lawsuits underway, but we're going to have to wait throughout the entire year for anything to materialize. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you look at the kind of utility companies that Warren Buffett likes to buy, they're in these states that are horribly protected, right? So when you look at Mid-American and the MISO region that they're in, I mean, you know, Exelon now is pushing legislation through Illinois that basically bans solar in the state of Illinois. Um, You've got, uh, you know, Iowa and other places that have interesting policy, but ultimately it's utility-scale renewable uh, driven. And you see the same thing in this article around uh, Nevada Energy that's in um, Utility Dive is they've said, you know, well, we love utility scale renewables. We just think that this rooftop stuff has to be done fairly. And, you know, there are going to be these states that have um, um, these dynamics where the utility really does own their own regulators. Um, and um, and Arizona is one of those states. And there's a couple of other states as well that are in that situation. And in those states, um, we have to win through legislative battles. We're not going to win through the Public Service Commission. So do you think, uh, Jigger, that this new energy industry task force that they pulled together that has the renewable folks, utilities, labor, consumer advocates, is just a way to save face? Or do you think they'll really come up with a long-term viable plan that's much more holistic? Because it looks like they're talking about a lot more than just solar. Well, the the... The art of actually meeting people and having personal relationships with people is always valuable, right? We've talked about this in terms of the COP process and all sorts of other you know, processes that don't lead to definitive outcomes. Um, so I think it's a good thing to have a task force. But if the solar industry can't show legislative power in 2017 to pass legislation to actually re- force the reversal of these decisions, then they won't have the actual, you know, power to affect things in this commission. I mean, you know how this stuff works. Is it, you know, you have to have a real credible threat on the other side. The real interesting thing about this task force is that there are no national solar companies represented. So they're trying to keep it in state. They're trying to keep it local. And, you know, I get the sense, given Brian Sandoval's record, Catherine, that he is serious about this. And I know that a lot of people in the industry were really pissed off at the lawsuit Uh, I think it was Sunrun's lawsuit against Sandoval because they don't want to back him into a corner. They recognize that he is a champion, that there are a lot of moving pieces here. And I get the sense that Sandoval really wants to do right by this. The question is, will it be incremental or will it be a major change and how quickly can it get done? So it's really limited by the legislature, the legislative calendar, and um, not necessarily by... how progressive Sandoval is on these issues. No, look, I mean, the thing about Sandoval, which is interesting, is that he is the governor of a purple state. And what's really fascinating to me is once we get out of the primary into the presidential election, I guarantee you that Solar City and Hillary Clinton are going to make this a campaign issue by which the Democrats are going to try to win Nevada. And that's what Sandoval is trying to head off at the pass. He is very concerned that the Republicans are going to lose enormous ground in Nevada over this issue. I have no doubt that that will take place. I really think the Clinton campaign 
is going to push full steam on this in key battleground states, and Nevada is going to be really important. Totally. So the real question. That. So the real question is: is is this the first time that solar actually plays a central role in the political process? I think so. You know, uh, Trevor Hauser, Clinton's chief energy advisor, was speaking at the solar summit for us last week, and uh, he said. He never imagined that the the secretary would be getting briefed on net metering policy in states like Nevada. And I get the sense based on his comments that they are going to focus on Nevada. Like they really care about this issue. He's super smart on rate reform. He's advising a team of folks on how to talk about rate reform and valuing distributed energy. And like the wonky stuff that we talk about on this podcast, I think will bleed into the campaign in a pretty big political way. So yes. Yeah, and I think whoever is the Democratic nominee, because remember, there's still, uh, it's the the primaries are still going on. I mean, I think that Bernie Sanders is in the same place. So he would fight just as hard as Hillary. Yep. Agreed. I think that's uh, a good place to leave it. Jigger, tell us something we may not know. So there has been a lot of back and forth around fracking in this uh, election cycle. And um, I just wanted to alert our listeners to a great article that Tim McDonald wrote um, in uh, Mother Jones magazine called Environmentalists Hate Fracking. Are they right? And I think he just goes through the benefits and failures of fracking in ways that are far more um, far less p- politicized and far more just like straight to the facts. Um, and, and I just think that the article is really balanced around the fact that natural gas really did do an extraordinary job of of helping to kill coal. Um, and that, you know, renewable energy today is more competitive than new natural gas and is doing a great job of, you know, providing 80% of all new capacity additions. And so... Um, I, for those people who are interested in a more balanced view around natural gas and its continuing role in the, the U.S. Uh, energy economy, I would um, uh, point you to this article. Tim's a great writer. Shout out to him. Agreed on the piece itself. And that was an offshoot of a piece that Bill McKibben wrote on methane, a greenhouse gas that is, of course, 25 times more potent than CO2. And a lot of environmental groups are really trying to message big on methane and saying, look, we have these short-term CO2 reductions, but if you actually measure greenhouse gas emissions, we think that this reliance on natural gas because of methane leaks um, is a real big problem for the climate. And he did a really good job of outlining uh, all the issues, including that one. Catherine, tell us something we may not know. Yes, so I want to revisit the West Virginia versus EPA case, which, as some of you know, is the case against the Clean Power Plan that received a stay from the Supreme Court until a three-judge panel in the district court could rule. Well, just this week, it was announced that instead of having this three-judge panel review the case June 2nd, that instead the entire uh, the entire court will review it en banc. And what that means is the full court, which is 11 justices, but only nine will hear it because Merrick Garland is, of course, the one that has been proposed for the new Supreme Court, the Supreme Court seat. And then another justice is also not going to hear it. So there will be nine judges that will hear it September 27th instead. Now, this was attempted uh, during FERC Order 745 when that... um, when that FERC rule was was stayed, we tried to get an en banc because the three justices that heard it, we did not think were in, in our favor. We wanted to get it reheard en banc because then you get more justices without having to take it to the Supreme Court. Well, what this does is it sort of circumvents that first three-judge process and goes directly to en banc, which I think will actually speed up the process because, because the court, the Supreme Court, is divided right now. What will end up happening is that whatever the Supreme Court does, if they are tied, it will go back to whatever that panel and the circuit court decided. So the more justices, if it's an en banc decision, it will be a fuller decision and because that will probably be what ends up being the final decision. So 
What this means is they'll probably then make a decision in the winter of 2016 or early spring of 2017 from this en banc panel. And then if it goes to the Supreme Court and they hear it in the fall of 2017, that that means the decision will come a lot faster. So um, this is a hugely important case. This will decide whether the Clean Power Plan, as it was written, will be um, upheld or if something else will, will go into place. But I think it's very interesting that they're going to do the they're going to hear it with a full panel of justices. Does this improve or take away from its chances? I think they're about the same um, because the on banc panel, the three judges that had been chosen, that had been drawn for the for this three judge panel, were probably going to be favorable. Um, the on banc uh, is five D's and four Republicans, so I think it would be equally as beneficial if they fall out by by political party. Okay. Um, I spoiled mine. I was going to talk about Trevor Hauser and his comments on energy policy. So he spoke at our solar summit. Shale Khan, our senior VP, interviewed him. And it was just a really insightful conversation and showed that Secretary Clinton is thinking about these issues and surrounding herself with people who understand them pretty well. So you can check out that transcribed version. It's an edited version. I cut it down by about half for clarity's sake. And I just... I think it shows that the campaign is going to make broad national issues like the Clean Power Plan an important part of the campaign and state-level policy and rate design an important part of the campaign. So, look, if you're in the industry and you're, you know, you're unsure about Clinton, if you're looking at this as an individual issue, energy and environment, she is clearly on the right page. There might be some differences in you know how folks think about this, but like these people that she's surrounding herself with are very smart. I was pretty impressed with that conversation, and I hope people you know read it to check out more details. I think you mean that she's on the left page. <laughs> There's no right and left for solar. There's just right and wrong. <laughs> That's the end, folks. You can find every episode of The Energy Gang at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. We're also on Stitcher. SoundCloud, iTunes, or any podcast app of your choice, including, soon, NPR's new app, NPR One. Don't forget about our live podcast coming up at the Grid Edge World Forum in San Jose on June 22nd. Find out more at greentechmedia.com slash events, and email us. We'd like to hear from you. Uh, our email address is podcasts at greentechmedia.com. I pass those around, and we do try to get back to listeners Um, It may take a little bit, but we get some good questions from folks, and we try to address those either through email or on the podcast itself. Jigger, have a good rest of your week and weekend. Thanks. You too. Catherine, good talking to you. Enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, I hear it's going to rain on Saturday, so I'm pretty psyched. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be beautiful here. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.